Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now as an audiobook, a paperback, but the ebook, esteemed reader, oh, the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers. For more information about that, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of authors, editors, literary agents, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. And we've got to get started. We are on a limited time today. I couldn't be more thrilled. We've got JL is joining us. Jess, thank you so much for, for making time for me and for uh, esteemed audience. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. Uh, esteemed uh, audience knows that I would never make you suffer through me summarizing either your book or your bio, uh, how painful that would be for you. So if you would give esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Sure. Now, should I talk about all my books or this one, <laughs> this one specifically? Dealer's choice, but we want we want esteemed audience to know that Taste of Magic is available on shelves uh, Tuesday, August 30th. 30th, yes. Very soon. Time to pre-order esteemed audience. And if you're listening to this after, good news, it's already available. Just go get it. <laughs> Thank you. So I am JL. I am the New York Times bestselling author of Wings, the Wings of Ebony Duology, um, which released in 2021. It was the Barnes and Noble Book of the Month for Black History Month nationwide. It was also an NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Work for Youth and Teens. And A Taste of Magic is my middle grade debut. So it's my first time writing for the middle grade audience. It's the start to a series, a magic school series. Um, in a former life, I was a wedding photographer. In a life before that, I was an educator. I am also a mom of three middle grade readers. So, or I guess two, and then like a third who wants to be a middle grade reader. So, cause she's trying to keep up with the older ones. So um, I, middle grade fiction and is just really near and dear to my heart. So I'm very, very excited about A Taste of Magic, which follows Kiana, who is 12 years old. And she finds out that at the age of 12, you get to learn the family secret, which she learns very quickly, like page two. And um, it's that she's a witch and she gets to enroll in magic school right there in her. She lives in an inner city community, right in her inner city community, in the back of her hair salon, the hair salon that she's been going to for years. She never realized there was a magic school behind a secret wall. So it follows her adventures at the magic school, her sort of learning what about her is magical and where magic is hiding in the real world. And then the world is sort of turned on its head when her school is threatened to be shut down because of redistricting and gentrification in her neighborhood. And so she has to use the skills that she's confident about to save her school or risk it being shutting, shut down. And that is book one. I love that. That is a nice, concise pitch. You've got it down. You know what esteemed audience needs to know. You're, you're you have known them. In fact, I've heard you talk elsewhere that you like to have uh, almost a synopsis written before you do a draft for a story. And, and I'm assuming that that would apply even more to a pitch, right? Absolutely. So I like to start with, so, you know, sometimes the idea will start with like something random. So the idea for this started with a smell of chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven. I was like, ooh, there's a book there because <laughs> there's a lot of food in this book. In fact, there are recipes in the back. Um, three of my grandmother's top secret family recipes are in this book. Uh, so if you're into baking, it's a lot of fun. Um, and so books for me start, they spark for different reasons. It just kind of depends on the, on the story or the idea. Sometimes it's, it's an aesthetic or a song or a show I'm watching and something will just kind of, an idea will pop in my head. But in terms of what I'm able to actually sit down and like crank out words, I generally like to have sort of a pulled back broad picture of like, what is the story I'm trying to tell? How does it start? How does it end? What's some of the fun stuff that happens in the middle or the spooky stuff or the magical stuff or depending on the tone of the story. Um, and so I like to write a, an abbreviated summary if I can. And that is harder than it sounds. I like to write an abbreviated summary. And then once I have that down, I can punch it out. So the, the first draft of this, I actually wrote in nine days. <laughs> this is terrible for an esteemed audience who's listening to a podcast. I'm making an expression you can't hear, but it's, it's one of shock, nine days. Uh, and obviously that's, that's a long way from the version that gets published. There's a lot of rewriting and such in there. But what do those nine days look like? Oh, goodness. So if you really want to know with specificity, you can go to my YouTube channel because I documented the entire thing. 
Um, it was a lot of me being very inspired and very deep in the story and just not wanting to leave. And so realistically, I can write for cer a certain set number of hours every day. And then I have to like plug into real life and do things like be an adult. Totally lame. Don't recommend it. Um, but for those nine days, I just turned off all of that. I was just like, I am not mom. I am not neighbor. I am not person who goes and does things like, you know, changes clothes. I just let myself live in the story. And I woke up, I think about 530. Um, I, I, would look at what needs to happen in the very next chapter because I would usually the night before like write a summary for that chapter just like a little paragraph what happens what are some of the fun things I want to make sure I get on the page and how it ends because I think the end of every chapter is like this little moment of magic where you're telling the reader you have to keep going and so I usually will notate that in my summary and then I will go to bed and I will literally fall asleep daydreaming or night dreaming about that summary and then in the morning, it's like when my eyes open, it's like that summary has been playing like a movie in my head. So I just start typing and I will type and type and type. I will stop. I will eat when necessary. Lots of ice cream, you know, and all kinds of things that I could do to get myself through. But I won't stop until that chapter is finished. Now, because this is middle grade and I typically write young adult, a chapter for middle grade is probably half the length of like a middle um, a YA chapter. So I was cranking out two chapters a day. So I got about 20 chapters in nine days down and it was, you know, it was a lighter draft. Obviously, like you said, I had to revise, but I just stuck to that. I don't get up until those two chapters are finished. And then I read my summary before the night before I wake up and I do it again. It was a bizarre nine days, but when I finished, I was like, oh, and then I'd also go to Twitter randomly. Like social media can be the best distraction because you're like, I need to just like check out for like five minutes. So I'll go to social media. I'll talk about, it. I've been writing for six hours. Oh my gosh, help. And then all my writing friends would be like, keep going. And they would like flood my comments with memes and gifts and like, you can do it. And I'm like, okay. And so then I go back to the time. I mean, it was just this whole thing. I don't know if I could ever do that again, to be honest, but it worked. So nine days, you're, you're getting the, the draft down. And then what happens? I'm assuming you don't dive right back in and revise. You put it away for a little bit to come back with fresh eyes? or so Because that was a little like whiplash, like because I wrote it so quickly, I actually for this one did. So the first thing that I do when I finish a draft, and if there are writers listening in the audience, I have the resources and like worksheets and templates that I use downloadable on my website, authorjl.com. So if you're looking, if you like some of these strategies I'm mentioning, you can download them and try them yourself. Um, so I will open a spreadsheet and I, I call it a plot thread tracker. And I will immediately make a, a list of all the plot threads. So in one of the plot threads, it's like the development of the magic. Um, another one is a friendship because her and her best friend her best friend is not magical. And so she's not allowed to tell anybody. So it makes their friendship very challenging. It's really fun and sweet to watch them work through that. But I have all the different threads and I create columns in the spreadsheet for that. And then chapters along the side. And I write down everything that happens in each little spot. And then what I do is I go and I look for holes. I go and look for where the pacing is, is lagging, like it's too redundant, where I might have a friendship chapter where they're like, struggling with uh, with Naomi finding out a secret and maybe that happens for three chapters well we don't really need that so I know oh I can cut these two and we can just have one chapter where she's struggling with telling her 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 friend this first secret and then the, the plot can keep going so I create this like map of my story and it helps me identify the holes so then I fill in the holes I know what I want to do and I make a list of these are my revisions and then I dive right back in and I make those revisions on this book. I don't do that for every book, but on this book I did. And that second draft revision took me probably three weeks. Um, and it was came out to about 50, 54,000 words at that point. I had beefed it up quite a bit because I needed to add stuff. And then I send it to some of my friends and I say, hey, read this. Tell me how bad it is. Um, and then that's how, that, that's when I officially took a break for this one. That's how you know somebody's a really great friend if you can say that to them and still <laughs> yeah. do it. <laughs> that's a keeper hang on to that relationship <laughs> so okay so you so it was very methodical so they say here's nine days and they think oh you must be running around like the you know the tasmanian devil and everything's yeah. a, in a local. <laughs> no it it is very focused you know what you're doing you've got more or less your 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 plot your 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 not your full synopsis but you know more or less what's going to happen 
uh, going in. So you have a plan of attack and you have a plan of attack for your writing session when you sit down. Like I'm going to definitely write from this point in the story to this point. Or how do you keep track of that? I do. Usually I, so I, write, I like to write in Google Docs because I'm terrible at remembering to save. I got burned by that once and I was like, never again. So what I do, I load a Google Doc with my summary and it's literally just right there. And I just write right under it. Um, my process has evolved a lot. When I did this book, that is exactly how I did it. I wrote the summary in this chapter. Kiana finds out that she's a witch and she's eager to, this is the first chapter. She's eager to get home and ask her mom. Well, she doesn't find out she's a witch. I'm sorry. I'm overgeneralizing. In this first chapter, something weird happens at school and she's eager to get home to talk to her mom about it. That's chapter one. So that's like my two sentence summary. And then I just start typing right under that. And then when I finish that chapter, I literally copy paste the next summary and you know, do this and repeat the process all the way through to the end of the book. When I revise, it's a little different because I don't put those summaries in there. What I usually do or what I used to do is I would use um, post-it notes and I would just make a note or an index card of every single change I want to make in the story. And then when I finish that change, I will rip that paper in half and it feels so good. It's like, I did it. I defeat this edit. And um, that's the process I used to follow. Now my process is a lot more convoluted because the book that I'm working on in the YA space is just bigger. It's just a bigger book, a bigger world, an open magic system, a lot of pages. Um, and so my process has had to evolve. But for even for the next, the sequel to this book, the process I'm telling you is very much the process I'm following. I'm working on the, the synopsis now and filling in the holes there. And then I'll start writing it. And then I'll start doing that sort of revision process with my sticky notes. Gotcha. And when you when you start, will you that will be after the book has come out, so you'll have had the chance to get some reader feedback. To no. I just <laughs> I will be turning in. I mean, typically no. Like typically, the way that they publishing wants these books to come out, they want them to come out a year at a time or as close to a year at a time as possible. Which means you're usually finishing the next book before the first one even comes out, which is interesting. And in a lot of ways, I like that because it helps protect your creative process. You know, I think of like Game of Thrones, which is obviously a different audience than this podcast, but like I can't imagine having a show out before the last books are written because then the show is telling the end of the story before you get to write it. And I always worry that that'll like influence my story vision, you know, because I'll get that reader feedback kind of in my head. So in this case, um, let's see, because I'm a little behind, uh, this particular book, the first draft of it will fit, I will finish it probably next month. So it will technically be after the first ones come out, but I'm planning to keep my head down, not reading reviews. I'm going to be writing like this because I really want to focus on telling the story that I want to tell, you know? And so I need to like, I need to let that be a, a process that I do alone with my, with my, my, good, my close reading friends. Well, this is your third book releasing into the world. So I assume you have a track record of being able to block out the world. When you focus <laughs> I try. <laughs> I try. So when you come to the second book, I mean, is there is there any kind of a sense of, hey, if this takes 10 days to write, I failed? <laughs> or is it okay? If it's yes, actually. You know, it's funny you say that because the process has evolved. I have been work struggling with the synopsis for book two for probably the entire summer. It is not coming as quickly. And I think that's because there's a few reasons, right? Like I'm trying to keep the long-term series in mind and think about where I want this book to go. There's also like the novelty of the first book with a magic school angle. You're learning about the magic school. You're learning about the magic system. You're learning about getting sorted into the kind of magic you have. And so there's just something about that that's so new and exciting. And so in the second book, I'm just being very, very picky and trying to be very intentional about how I engage readers in, in, in the same sort of thrilling experience because now they know the magic options. Now they know they, they're into magic school. So it's like a constant battle. How do I make this as interesting and as exciting when the reader is now coming in knowing a little bit of the world? And I think that's always the challenge of a series. So it's a little bit harder, but I think it's supposed to be. If I'm really, really giving it my best, I think it's supposed to be a little harder. Um, you mentioned there are secret recipes, which I'm assuming aren't, are, they're not going to be secret uh, as of August 30th. Um, so I'm assuming everybody uh, in your family is cool with that. They understand this is a thing you're doing. It's fine. <laughs> I had to do some arm twisting with my, my late grandmother uh, when I was working on this book. She had just got diagnosed with leukemia. 
And uh, I, my grandmother was basically my mother. She raised me. So I say grandmother, but you can hear mother. <laughs> you can just swap those words. And um, I was writing this book and the, there's a grandmother character, usually in all my books, but in this one in particular named Mima. And um, Mima is a great cook. She's a little forgetful, but she's a great cook. And I modeled a lot of her personality and the things that she would say, and even like her baking tips. Like she tells Kiana um, to never measure sugar exactly. Like you follow a baking recipe perfectly, except for the sugar. You always, you don't level it off. You always put a little bit more sugar. And that's something my grandmother taught me when I was very little. So you get these little tidbits of that. And so when I finished the book, I was like, grandma, this is so special. I would love to actually put, because I referenced some of her recipes in the story. It's like, I would love to put your actual recipes. And the family was like, we don't even have those recipes. And I was like, it's like a book. Like, this is a big deal, please. And after a little while, she's like, okay. And she like hand annotated the recipes to tell me the ways that she has modified them over the years. And those hand annotations are still there. Um, and unfortunately she passed away in January of this year, but like so much of her is on these pages that it's really sweet. I'm excited to see all of the social media posts of people baking her food. I think that's gonna be darling. And have you got recipes saved back for the, the second book or <laughs> <laughs> what will you do? I, it's a spoiler if I tell you, but book one has recipes for a specific reason that ties to the magic system. And that's all I'll say. Book two is focusing on a different branch of the magic system, which does not require a cooking angle. It requires a different angle. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> An esteemed audience can look forward to enjoying that and finding out all these secrets. Uh, do we have an approximate window for when that'll be available? It'll be early 2024. Gotcha. Uh, and then, of course, um, your your first series, The Wings of Ebony, um, which I uh, was uh, enjoying here over the weekend, um, was YA, but we're also doing, uh, we're also doing a magical world and, and uh, not, well, you know what, why am I trying to summarize your book? I promised you I wouldn't do that. Please give a esteemed audience a summary of Wings of Ebony so I can ask you questions about it. Sure. So my first duology Wings of Ebony and Ashes of Gold. This is a completed duology. So this is like the entire story. I know some people like to wait till all the books come out before they start reading. So you can let this one keep you up all night and immediately lose sleep another night uh, reading the sequel because they're both out. Uh, and Wings of Ebony follows Rue, who is a, a Black teen from an inner city neighborhood that's full of sort of drugs and violence and crime. After her mother's murder, she's taken away from the, the place where she grew up from her estranged father, who she never knew. And he takes her to this island off the coast of Africa where everyone has magic. Um, the other thing that's kind of odd about this island is that no one looks like her. Like only her and her dad are the only two that kind of look the same. Everyone else looks different. They have this like grayish skin tone. Um, and so she feels very isolated there. She's also trying to grieve her mother. And so she just wants to be home. And she also doesn't know her father at all. Never met the man. So she is, there's a lot of sort of grief and like animosity she has to work through with him because her mom's life was very hard raising her as a single mom. And so she's sort of grappling with all of this. When the book opens, she decides to sneak away from that island because she has a sister who did not get taken um, because her sister has a different dad. So her sister went to go live with her dad, um, but she misses her. So on the anniversary of her mother's death, the book opens with Ruth sneaking back to Houston, which is where the book is set, to leave her sister, her younger sister, a little gift, just to say, I remember mom too, and I love you, and I hope you're okay. Um, but her plan is just to sneak there and sneak back, not even let her sister see her because she doesn't want questions. How to, she doesn't know how to answer questions like, well, where have you been? I mean, how do you explain that? I've been on an island with magical people. I, so it's easier if I just like lurk in the shadows, leave her a gift from me and disappear. That doesn't work. It goes completely sideways. And so the book follows Rue dealing with the consequences of breaking that rule, but feeling justified in breaking that rule because she loves her sister. And it takes her on a journey of discovering her ancestor's magic and re recognizing the sort of connection that she has to her ancestor's magic and how she can use that to actually protect her sister and her community back home. Gotcha. So when you're, um, well, I've got all kinds of questions. I guess the, the most obvious place to start is when you're writing middle grade now versus YA, what are the biggest differences in the choices you make, the style that, that you write with, and also your approach? I mean, does it take you 18 days to, to write away? How does your, how does your process change? My process is very different. Now, some of that is just because I, I cut my teeth on Wings of Ebony. That was my first book. I wrote it in 35 days, 
and this draft, this, this, this draft, for those of you who are not viewing, but listening, this draft, I'm holding the finished book. This draft is the 19th draft of that book that I wrote in 35 days. So in a lot of ways, you know, my process has had to evolve. Um, the sequel to Wings of Ebony took me three drafts to get it from first draft to bookshelf. Um, and so part of it is just sort of the natural evolution of writing. I mean, you're an author, you get that. I feel like we, we just, our books continue to get better. They always say your first book is the worst one you'll ever write. And I believe that, at least for me, that was true. So to some degree, the differences now in my process are because of that. Um, but then also why approaching YA and approaching middle grader difference because the voice to me is completely different and just the heart of the story. So the tone, for example, in Wings of Ebony, I was wanting a gritty tone. I wanted the book to feel very gritty and real, very deeply grounded in the contemporary. And that's something you see in both my books. Um, a Taste of Magic is very grounded in the real world, but I wanted A Taste of Magic to feel like what eating a chocolate chip cookie looks like or feels like. Like that's what I wanted to capture in this book, that warmth, that just like you want to hug the book where you finish, when you finish, like the, I wanted, I wanted my readers to laugh out loud. I wanted my readers to be laughing so hard. The parents were like, what is happening on the page of this book? This is what my kids do when they read Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I'm like, that is fantastic writing. My kids are cracking up. Like, wait, 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 I want to read Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And all of, all of a sudden it's fostering this love of learning and literacy, which is ultimately what I'm most passionate about is like getting kids in books. Um, so that they love to read. I uh, was a teacher, uh, in, like I told you before. And so I just, I want to trick kids into loving books. And so one way I do that in middle grade is through humor. And so the voices were very different when writing YA and middle grade. The plot is a lot simpler. I don't have as many plot points. I mean, these books are actually similar in length, um, interestingly, but typically the middle grade that I read is shorter than the YA that I read. Like in YA fantasy, my new series, that book is clocking at like 500 pages right now because the world is so big and there's just a lot happening. Um, whereas in, in, in Kiana's story, I wanted to keep it simpler, but not, that doesn't mean that we're lacking a complexity or a character depth. I just wanted to focus in on the story very closely on like friendship and family magic and like um, love and like all of these like warm, giddy feelings. And so the outlining process is pretty similar. I just spend a lot more time refining before I write when I'm getting into YA because there's so many more plot threads to braid together. So for middle grade, you you want a more focused. Uh, this is what the what the story is, and we're doing this. And obviously, there's going to be a larger series, uh, and and all of this happening. But you want that initial emotion. You want it to feel like the the taste of the cookie. Yes. I know you've got the the three littles there. I wonder if, if that's a factor also, because I don't know if they're able to read Wings of Ebony. No, they haven't. They haven't. Not a little bit. They. I mean, they get spooked out just by watching like cartoon dinosaurs. So they're probably not ready for Wings of Ebony. <laughs> But um, it's, a, it's a more mature book, depending on what kids are accustomed to reading. A Taste of Magic is just sweet and fun and lighthearted. But there's still like things in there that I'm, you know, I'm talking about re gentrification and redistricting and how these affect communities. Um, I'm talking about owning a home and what that means to a family for generational wealth. Like there are some real themes in these books. And in each book in the series, I have a theme that I want to tackle that's more of a real world theme because I think it makes it, again, my teacher hat slipping on. I think it makes it very relevant um, and teachable when you can take something that's fun and exciting. And then also, because then you have a kid's attention, right? They're in the story, they're excited, they're laughing, they're paying attention, and then you can teach them something because you have their ear. So um, that's sort of my approach to middle grade, which is a little different from my approach to YA. Although with Wings of Ebony, without, without spoiling, I mean, there are gods who are poisoning the community, right? Yes. Um, which, so not quite gentrification exactly, but not, yeah. not that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not that exactly. <laughs> so when, uh, obviously you think that, I'm, I'm assuming that's a popular theme that we can look forward to maybe uh, recurring in, 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 the, in the real world, but also your novels. Unfortunately, in the real world. Yes, um, my next YA series is, it actually just announced last week, I believe, or the week before. Yes, the week before. And, um, Gosh, no, I think that was last week. What is time? So, so my next series is a little bit more, um, gosh, I don't know how to describe it. It definitely does have these real world topics though woven in. It's just a lot more nuanced. Um, in the A Taste of Magic series, I'm working on book two now. 
there, you can expect tons of shenanigans, lots of humor, lots of silliness. I mean, for readers, the, the magical world is policed by ferrets who have, I mean, they don't talk or anything, but part of the magic system is that you can connect people who have a link specialty. They can link themselves emotionally with a creature and ferrets are the most popular creature used for linking. And so uh, the police in this world, the magical authorities in this world to amplify their, their ability to be in multiple places, they will link themselves to several different ferrets. And so you might have a ferret show up at your door to investigate misuse of magic instead of a magical authority figure. Um, and so they're a little ridiculous because they don't communicate, but they're very bossy and demanding and they have these really shiny badges, which I think gives them like this sort of, I'm better than you syndrome. And they're just hilarious. I mean, when I'm reading it, it's a little ridiculous because it's funny. I mean, they're bossy and, and kids fall in line. They're just like, no, you. I mean, they're not talking, but they make what they want to say known. And the kids, you know, they snap to attention, which is kind of hysterical. And then there's like a stove in here that spits out pizzas on demand. His name is Lou. And you can tell Lou whatever you want. Now, Lou is getting a little on in age. So we might see him revisited in book two. And maybe the orders that you place don't come out exactly like they're supposed to. But uh, Lou is, is he's, he's the best babysitter because he can feed you whatever pizza you want. So like that sort of like silly ridiculousness you will see in the entire series. And my goal is to make uh, readers just crack up laughing but also learn something. And that's again, threaded through. I, I want it to be six books, but I'm taking it one book at a time. So at this point it's two. We'll see after two if it's gonna be three, but in my head, it has capacity to be like six. So that again, without without spoiling or asking you anything you can't necessarily answer, I'm assuming the ending for book two has to be something that leaves it wide open for the other four you'd like to do, but could also be a good finale if it ends up being a duology, right? I will definitely decide on book three be, whether or not I'm going to do a book three before I finish two, because the direction that I'm taking this series is that the magical problems get bigger and grander, and they take you to newer places. And so if we're going to go to that newer place, I'm going to see that at the end of book two. So I just need to finish it and see what I think. I love my idea for book three. I think it's just as wacky and wild as the other ones. So as long as I still feel that conviction at the end of book two, I'll, I'll keep going. Is that, and, and I guess we'll find out as you're going, but I'm assuming that also opens up the, um, that, not problem, the opportunity for a solution, uh, that your world's going to get bigger. Uh, so the story's going to get bigger. You're going to have characters that you need to check on from the previous book. So by the time you're getting to book six, you're, you're going to be in Game of Thrones length, right? <laughs> Yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, that's one of my favorite series. So yeah, that'd be fun. I think the fun thing about middle grade is I'm able to localize things quite a bit. And so I've been able to like tie up certain characters, plot threads. And there's a, there's a trio. I don't want to ruin it. There's a trio in this book of kids. That trio is still central in book two. In book three, the trio is going to have to split up to, to tackle different things. Um, so that'll be interesting because they'll be in two different places. If, if, if I write book three, it sounds like I'm writing book three because I'm very excited about it. <laughs> if I were a betting man, I would, I would put money on the, on the, there's for sure going to be a book three. Uh, we'll see about book four or five and six. Although I imagine if you could find passion for three, you'll, you'll probably find passion for four, five and six. So keep a track of, um, of of your world building and of your magic systems. So we talked about, you've got the synopsis for the plot. You've got what's happening at the beginning of the chapter, end of the chapter, but you've got to keep um, a magic system that's going to still, you're, you're not going to hate yourself uh, when you're four books in. I'm looking back, I'm like, why did I make that rule? Now I can't do the thing I want to do in book four. Yeah, that's so tricky. And I would say that's one of the biggest things I've learned since my first book is just how to build a magic system. And I'm constantly like learning and relearning and unlearning. And I just feel like I learned so much each book. I still feel like I have so far to go. And I think that's the most exciting part about being an author is that with every book I'm having fun, but I'm also teaching myself things and learning new things. And like when I finish a book, it's never perfect, which is I don't believe things can be perfect. So I don't even put that pressure on myself. But I do move on to the next thing and go, okay, like, what am I going to learn now? And I mean, implicit in that is what am I going to do wrong here? And there's just something beautiful about sort of approaching life from that way, recognizing that like, I'm going to make mistakes, I'm going to learn things, and that's how it's supposed to go. So I'm very excited about sort of the books to come and um, what I'm going to do with the magic. I have the way, one of the structural things I can share about the series is that 
there are, so in, in magic school in Parker Magic Academy, which is the magic academy in this book, um, there are general spells, charms, potions, and uh, availables. Now there are links, but Park Road does not have the budget to be able to do link training. So there are all of these different types of magic. And what I'm hoping to be able to do is do one book that is a deep dive in each type of magic specialty so that it feels fresh and exciting and sort of new. Because part of the exciting part about the magic system is like it's new. And so we get such a deep dive into Kiana's magic specialty in this book that I thought in book two, it would be fun to dive into one of the other magic strands. And by this point, Kiana's using her magic. So her magic strand is still there. Um, but you get to see us focus in on another magic specialty. And since there are so many, I feel like each one can sort of parallel a book. Perhaps. That's the tentative plan, at least. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll see what we'll see. Anytime somebody tells me my exact plan for anything, <laughs> is I just ask them, what was it in 2019? What was your plan? <laughs> okay, well, we'll see what we'll see. Hopefully it'll yeah. all be great. <laughs> exactly. So... Um, I wanted to, to circle back. Uh, you were uh, an educator originally. At what point do you decide that you really should be an author? Are you a lifelong writer? Did you come to it through love of reading? Um, definitely came through through love of reading. I never thought of myself as a writer, to be honest. Um, really what happened is a story came to me and I could not, like it was waking me up out of my sleep. Like I would literally wake up in the middle of the night and I'd lay there and my mind was just going and going and going. And I was like, I have to go to sleep. It's the middle of the night. At the time I had very young children, like babies. And I was like, I need sleep. So I remember pulling out my notes app and just jotting down whatever was in my head. And then I could go back to sleep. I did that for probably four years. And then finally I said, what? Because these were just like little snippets of things that were stuck in my head. And I could not, they weren't a cohesive anything. And so then I sat down and I was like, okay, can I write a book? And I will never forget trying to string together those random notes messages into a story. And it was like messy and not really making any sense. But I just like was practicing typing out a chapter. For example, I knew nothing of character development or scene structure. I didn't even know how to use a dialogue tag, which is like comma, he said, period. Like I didn't know how to do any of that. I just was like, let's try to see if I know how to write a story. So I took this mismatch of things and I kind of put them together and it was a mess. It was a hot mess, but it satiated my appetite for writing. And so when I finished that, and I don't consider that actually finished because it wasn't really a thing, um, I sat down and I said, okay, I'm actually going to pursue writing a book to query to publish. And an idea, I, I decided that and then nothing happened for a very long time. Um, and then one morning I woke up at 5 a.m. literally and I had an idea and I knew my brain wasn't gonna like I've, I've played this game with my brain for years like when it has an idea it's like a dog with a bone I, I can't ignore it so instead of fighting it I opened my laptop and I just started typing and a month later I had wings of ebony is that I mean is that true to this day that your, your your brain gets a hold of a bone and I had this plan I told my agent I was going to write this but actually now I've got this I've got to do you know, I would say now I'm a lot more methodical because before I was led by just sort of the creative passion. And now I'm realizing that unless I want to rewrite a book 19 times, I need to put some forethought in and get organized. I've also learned a lot more about character and plot and how those two intersect. And I am a religious outliner now. Um, I used to just kind of write with emotion and like what I want, where I wanted the story to go. And that was great because it let me get out those sort of emotional pieces that are very important in my stories. All my stories are deeply emotional. Um, I'm a cancer. I don't know. So, um, but now I realize that those, those emotional pieces take a lot of massaging to fit into a plot, uh, to have pacing that's engaging, to have thrilling sort of chapter endings to engage the reader. And that's what I'm doing in revision. So now with Ashes of Gold, which is the second book that I put that, that um, the end of the Wings of Ebony duology. So my second book that came out in uh, January of this year, yes, this year, um, I was a lot more rigid with my outline. And so now I know what I'm going to do before I do it. In fact, now when I have that synopsis that we talked about, I will send that to my agents or my and or my editor ahead of time and be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And the beautiful part about that is they can look at my synopsis from a bird's eye view and say, 
maybe move this here and move that here and then take this out. And I can do that work at the, at the summary level so that I don't have to write it wrong. And so then my drafts just come out a lot cleaner. Um, I also draft a lot slower. I don't put that chapter summary in my document anymore for my YA books. Um, I will just kind of sit down and sketch out what I want the scene to be. So this will happen, this will happen. I need to mention these different world building things. And this is the big moment. This is the character's, the character's choice moment in the scene. And then at the very end, I'll do this. And then I will bullet point that. So that's like zero drafting. And then I will go back and turn those bullet points into a chapter. And I sometimes I only get a half a chapter or a fourth of a chapter and I'll stop because it's just a lot more methodical now. Um, which is good and bad, because I don't know how to stop my brain from working that hard anymore. My brain is thinking about the later drafts. When I was, when I started writing, my brain only thought about this draft, and I've lost the ability to do that. I'm thinking about what is my editor going to say about this? What is the copy editor going to say about this word? And I don't know how to turn that off anymore, so it's really lengthened my drafting process, but the, the, the silver lining in that is that what I finish is a lot cleaner. Does that uh, get in your way at all from um, the passionate, you know, the, the bone you've got a hold of? Like, stop telling me your notes. Let me just follow this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a nine-day uh, book writer. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you balance that passion, that need to get the story down and be what it's going to be against being careful, being smart with your time, being effective as, as a writer? It is such a battle. Like, Rob, I am living this right now as I work on the sequel to my, my next YA, the book two, not sequels, the middle of the trilogy. And it is a constant struggle. Like I was talking to one of my best friends who she's a writer too. And we, we read each other's fresh raw, it's called alpha reading. Like we read each other's like raw drafts, like no editing, just brain dumped. Here's what I wrote. You read it. Um, and we do that for each other. And it's very motivating because it's, it's immediate feedback. But um, I was just telling her, because we talk pretty much every morning, that's part of my, part of our editorial process, is we will talk about what we're going to write that day, we'll usually exercise while we're talking, get the brain warmed up, and then we'll go to our desks and we'll write, and then we'll email each other pages later that day. That's kind of my process now. And um, what I was telling her was, was, like, I don't know how to turn off my editor brain. I don't, I, I don't know how to turn it off anymore. And so what happens realistically is I just get, I get to points where I'm stuck because I can't let the passion take over because my brain, I will have an idea that my brain will think of the 20 ways that idea doesn't work or doesn't line up or doesn't cinch. Whereas with Wings of Ebony, I just let it, I just let it out. And then I massaged it after. And so sometimes I just can't. And I just will like, I will just be stuck for like weeks. And then something will click and I will sit back down and I will find a way around that or a different way to look at that or a different angle to, to, to work in that idea that I had and then I'm going again. So it's just a lot more start, stop. I would say I'm a more patient writer now than I used to be. And I think it shows in the work, um, just from my biased opinion. I think that, you know, they always say your first book, like I said before, like your first book is your worst book. And I see so much beauty in Wings of Ebony and just, I'm so proud of that story. But then I can also see like the depth and methodical craft in my current series that is just such a better written, better written book um, because I've, I've learned so much the more I write. And I, I assume my 10th and 20th book will be even better. So I'm excited to get there. Uh, your first book is maybe your worst book. I, I, I don't know 100% that that's true, but it's also, for me at least, the book where I'm the most confident. Like, I must be amazing. Look at me writing a book. <laughs> I never have that confidence again. That's it. That's so it. I release that so hard. But now that you are New York Times bestselling author, uh, JL, does that... Um, does that carry over uh, confidence more than burden when you come to time to draft? You know that this is going to be read. You know what some of the readers are going to look like, right? I would say it, it influences me more than I probably admit to myself. Like, um, if you ask me, I, my answer is always, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I have no idea what I'm doing. But then there are moments, like when I'm revising or I'm reading through something I wrote, and like my editor or a friend who's reading will say, this doesn't feel right. And I just know that it is right. And I don't always know how to explain that. And I'm like, but this, this moment might seem extraneous, might not seem as significant as it needs to be, but this moment has to be here. Like this has to exist in this character's story. 
And sometimes it's because I need to like make that moment more relevant or make its significance more clear or seed it better. But um, I realize that I'm learning to trust my instinct more. So that would imply that I am more confident. But if you were to ask me, my answer is always, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but I do, I do feel like my editorial instinct is stronger. Um, and there's just, you know, my, my good, good friends who have been in this business much longer than I have and sold millions of books. Um, well, she always tells me, two of them I'm thinking, they both, they always tell me, you have to trust yourself. And I'm starting to listen to that more because they're like, you are, like, you know what you're doing. You have an instinct. And when you abandon that instinct entirely, you risk, like, losing yourself, losing your voice in your story. And I think when you're writing in traditional publishing, it can be really, there can be a lot of pressure to sort of do what other people want. And I feel like the more books that I write, the more I feel that pressure. And so being confident, having this confidence that you're talking about is important because it keeps me rooted in this reality that I know I'm the writer. Like I have the artistic vision and I can't get to a published book by myself. My editor is a genius, but like I am the artist and I need to be able to create the art. Something I'm, I'm watching our time is flying by, but I can't not ask because I know that not only did you teach yourself to write and go out and seek the information on, on how to get that process down, but then you go and become an editorial intern um, for for where for Geffman and ICM Partners, and you work with literary agents. How do you learn about publishing that way? How do you get that gig, and what does that teach you about publishing? Yeah, so I don't do that anymore. I did it for about a year. It was very insightful. Um, and so it's interesting because I don't see those jobs advertised. Um, a lot of them are like internships or a lot of them are unpaid. So it's kind of like free labor. But, uh, and a lot of them, if they are paid, they want you in person. It's very difficult to find a remote position. Now, the pandemic allowed, opened up a lot more opportunities for remote work. And let's see, I interned, I think it was 2019 when I interned. I think it was the 2019, that calendar year. So it might've been before the pandemic or maybe it was 20. It definitely was not 2020. It was 2019. It was 2019. So it was pre-pandemic, but um, I just asked to be really honest. I reached out to a couple of agents and I was like, do you need um, an intern to help with your slush pile? I'm, I have a very good eye for like finding things with potential and I'm interested in learning this side of the business. And I got a lot of no's. I got a lot of non-responses, but I got a couple that were like, absolutely. Um, and they took me on. What they had me do is they had me read a sample manuscript. I want to say it was like 50 pages, not a whole one. And then they had me give them my editorial feedback and they used that to decide if I was a good fit or not. And that was quite, kind of, once you get one internship, you can use that to get another one because I interned at two different agencies. Um, and it was really great. It, it, it showed me sort of the inner machinations of a business that I didn't, I only understood as a querying writer. And like, the business of publishing, which is something that writers often don't think about, is something I found really fascinating. How a story can be fantastic, it can be engaging, it can be, it can be great, but if an agent has no idea how to sell it, they have to pass. And like when you're the writer, it just feels so defeating. You're just like, but is it my book good? But is it, but is it, but is it? Please give me a chance. And so, so often querying writers will leave that rejection experience and think my book is not good. And that oftentimes is not it at all. It's just, if they can't sell it, I mean, their job is to take your manuscript and, and sell it. And they have to know editors who are interested in that. They have to know that there's a market for that, or at least they believe there's a market for it. And they have to understand it enough to be able to pitch it. So you have some agents who are passing on great stories because they don't understand it enough to be able to talk about it in a persuasive way. If they can't pitch you well, you're, they're wasting your time. And so it really is about finding the right agent. I am on my second agent um, who I am madly in love with. She's the best. Um, but both of my agents were, you know, were both my previous agent was also, I should say, very, very much the right fit for that season in my writing career. Um, and my current agent is the right fit for the season that I'm in now. So it's a personal thing. And interning helps me understand that because from as a writer, I didn't, I didn't get that. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I still am in contact with those agents. They buy my books. When I announce a new book deal, they email me and they congratulate me. And it's really sweet. I also like now when I'm reading, like I randomly will mentor writers because they don't have time to do like an internship. 
But part of the reason I was interested in that, not only to learn about the business, but to also like be the eyes for some of these agents that are struggling to like understand potential in a story that's kind of outside of their paradigm. Um, if it's a story by a marginalized author, and they're just like, I don't really connect to this, but it feels like there's something here. I got to stand in that gap and say, yes, this is what's here. Like, this is what I see. And this is the potential here. And this could be amazing. And this is the audience for that book. So I got to advocate for writers whose books may have just kind of been passed up because I got the story and the agent didn't necessarily until I talk them through it. And a lot of times when I would read those manuscripts, I would write full on edit letters and I'd give it to the agent and the agent would digest that and say, okay, 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 I can do this. And they will offer to that writer and then they could see the vision for the book. So I got to like stand in the gaps and help other writers get a leg up. And I mean, obviously those writers don't know that because I'm just in the, in the inbox, like minding my business and not telling, they don't know what's happening on the inside, but it was an opportunity to see how there can really be well-meaning agents who just don't get it. Um, and if they don't connect, they're just like, oh, I, I like this, but I don't know how to sell it. So I have to say no. You know, it's a very difficult job they have. Um, and I don't envy it at all. But so anyway, so that kind of in a nutshell was my internship. But I still do mentor time to time. And because of the relationships that I've fostered with agents in the community, when I run across a, um, a manuscript that I'm mentoring that I really like, and I think the writer has potential, I will just email those agents and go, hey, this is one of my mentees. Can you take, can you consider their book, which is helpful to them because they don't have to go through the nausea of querying a lot of times because I can just reach out to, you know, eight to 10 agents who I have good relationships with and they'll consider their work. So I like to do as much as I can to help writers who are like me, who are cutting their teeth on a book, who didn't know they could be a writer, who are writing stories from perspectives that don't get picked up often. I want to be to be able, I want to be able to stand in that gap and like bridge those experiences and help as much as I can. I admittedly do not have as much time to do that now. Um, I offer freelance editorial services on my website because it's like I can, I have to spend most of my time working on my stories. But if someone is wanting to put in the commitment to sort of pay for editorial services, I will go to the mat with them and, and do as much as I can. Um, and honestly, I only open up to like two, two editing slots a year because I just don't have time. But I, I can't let go of helping writers. Like I just, I remember being that writer and gosh, every single person who would retweet me or respond to my DM or about Storycraft or like recommend a book or read a page. Like it meant so much to me and I wouldn't be an author had they not done that. So I want to do that as much as I can. If karma is real at all, you are storing it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I know you've, uh, you've been a mentor and you ran the, what the Twitter, uh, what was the Twitter thing that you, the you hashtag, ran? Um, Monday Mixer. I ran that. Um, which was fun. That was a lot of fun. Gosh, I missed that. Monday Mixer was so much fun. It was just Mondays. It was a Monday hashtag where writers would just hop on Twitter and we would just all talk. And sometimes like Tiffany Jackson, who's a best-selling and award-winning thriller writer in the YA space. Um, one time she came on to join me for Monday Mixer and she like answered all these questions from her perspective. And this is like before I was published. And so I don't know. It's just, I like connecting people because I think there's something, and even just like venues like this, like I'm so appreciative to have the opportunity to connect with your audience because I just feel like you never know when like something you say or something, some small thing you do can impact someone to like inspire them or encourage them. And sometimes I think it's those little, those little interactions that we don't even realize we're having, those impacts that we're having on each other that like push people to like fight a little bit harder for their dreams or try that thing out that seemed too hard. And so, I don't know, I make, I like to take advantage of opportunities to, to do that because so many people did that for me. Christine, well, you know, I want to follow up. Uh, I know that you've said elsewhere that persistence and community are writer's superpowers. I don't have a question. I just love that quote. <laughs> I don't even remember saying that, but I know that I said it and I believe that. Um, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, I had a very unique writing journey um, I don't think we've mentioned it before, but I, I entered a Twitter pitch contest, um, and that is how I got a book deal, <laughs> ultimately. I entered DivPit, so hashtag DVPIT, it still happens um, two times a year, and it's a phenomenal program. It's led to many amazing books, um, Amari and the Knight Brothers, which is like a massively um, successful middle grade, was a DivPit book. Lots of books are, and um, basically, I pitched this book in a tweet on a particular day between a set number of hours when publishing is looking at Twitter for pitches. And uh, my tweet went viral. It got hundreds of likes and hundreds of retweets. And it just, 
what those likes and retweets mean is I want to see this book. I want to consider it. And so from that tweet, I was able to then query agents, the ones who had liked it. And because they knew it was coming, I could just put div pit in the subject line and they looked at it right away. Most writers don't have a journey like that. Most writers are in the query trenches for years. One of my best writing friends, uh, it took her 10 years to get a, to get an agent in her first book deal. And so I feel exceptionally, exceptionally fortunate to have had such a faster sort of um, journey to a published book. And I think that's another layer to why I want to use not a lot of people ha are in that position of privilege where they got to like jump the jump the you know the years and years of query stress and I and I did and I was very fortunate um, that it worked out that way and so I want to use that privilege as much as I can um, to help others. But DivFit is a, is a great opportunity. Um, if anyone listening is a writer and decides to enter DivFit, please 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 let me know. You can DM me. My DMs are open, um, and I will be happy to boost your your pitch and and support and encourage you any way that I can. Where can esteemed audience find you online and follow you on social media? So I am at author a u t h o r j l j e l l e um, on every platform, including TikTok. <laughs> and. Um, we're right here at the very end, but esteemed audience knows I ask everybody that comes on the show, and I won't, I won't forget today. Uh, JL, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Not a flying saucer. I'm on the fence about what I saw. Was it a ghost? There was definitely, I've definitely like felt a supernatural presence in my life. Yeah. After my grandfather died very palpably. Um, but I never really called it a ghost. I just, it was a very, like it was, it was not a dream. Um, so yeah, no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> well, Jess, this has been a, a privilege and a pleasure and we're coming in right at the wire. I so appreciate you making the time for me and my audience. You've got more books coming. I hope that we'll get to sit down and we'll do this again sometime in the future. I'd love to. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, as always, esteemed audience, for more interviews almost as good as this one and uh, all sorts of resources, head to middlegradedinjet.com. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.